0: I was in Italy one time with my wife and our friend Charlie, who's a fiddler, and we uh, we had so much fun, and all we did was we would go to small towns and find the local uh, town square, and we'd sit down and start playing music. And people would say, what is that music? You know, And uh, we'd say, they'd say, is it Irish music? And we'd say, it's old time American music. But we got, a, we got a little gig playing at a restaurant uh, in this little town, Camoli, and uh, we sat there all afternoon playing, and all kinds of stuff happened, but I noticed this gentleman in kind of a trench coat, and he kept staring at us, and finally I said, uh, he, he, he came up to us, and he said, he pointed right at us and said, banda band and I, <laughs> and I went, how do you know string band music, and he goes, I have a recording. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm your host, Joe McHugh. And in this podcast, I want to introduce you to a pair of folk musicians who have the talent both to make you smile and tap your foot. Jerry and Greg Canote are identical twins living in the Pacific Northwest. Greg plays the fiddle and Jerry plays guitar, banjo, and ukulele, just about anything with strings. And I met up with them at the Festival of American Fiddle Tunes in Port Towns in Washington in 2016. The Canotes are a mainstay of the festival, a week-long event that combines music classes with concerts and dances. And it was the highlight of my visit to chat with them and hear their stories. So let's get into the mood by starting with a little bit of the song Grey Cat on a Tennessee Farm from their CD Five String Circus. <laughs>
0: Take a dram, I'ma gonna tell you pretty polly ain't
1: Is it Italian?
0: It's not Italian. Ah, it's it, actually of Swedish derivation. It's probably a bastardization of uh Canute. Canute. Ah. Yeah, so it would be K-N-U-T-E, but it was C-A-N-O-T-E is the way we're spelled. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well you're so outgoing and lively. I thought you were Italian. What can I tell you? <laughs> 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 not, not Scandinavian. Ever said that to us yeah, there you go. So, I always ask, and this is how I start all these interviews, basically, any scraps of music, musicians in your family, how did this come down to you? Oh, good
0: question. Well, our father was a piano player, and he played by ear. He played in the key of C. Anything he heard on the radio, he could play. Or the TV, or anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one time he came home from work, and he sat down, and there was a little thing on the TV about the Hare Krishnas, and he goes over and he starts playing the Hare Krishnas Hare song. Krishna, <laughs> Hare Krishna. But yeah. when we were little, he would make up songs, you know. We want to hear a song about a giraffe. He would make up a little giraffe song. And know. he loved to play uh, Teddy Bear's Picnic and, um... Fascination. Fascination and, uh, Hits, hits, his hits of his hits of day. his era, and yeah. he played every night after dinner for about a half an hour. It was his form of relaxation. But we really learned that that music was something you did, uh, and you did it at home. I think that was yeah, yeah, an important thing for us.
1: What was his background? Where did your family come from originally? Oh, Is this yeah. in Seattle we're talking? This no, in, this was in
0: Sacram. Uh... Uh, well, it was San Jose, California, and Sacramento. We were born in Stockton, California. And then we moved uh, when we were five, four or five, to uh, Sacramento, and then we lived there till we were ten.
1: What year were you born? We were born 51. in fifty-one.
0: Okay. And then we moved to uh, San Jose, California, and we grew up there basically. And then came to Seattle in nineteen eighty.
1: Yeah. So going back to your musical father, what what was his background? How did he get there? Eastern Nebraska.
0: And uh, when he was a young man, he used to play on the radio. Yeah. yeah, and now Bobby Burton Canote will play the the uh, piano wearing heavy work gloves and blindfolded. blindfolded. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and the story is the story from him was that uh, he took piano lessons and the teacher noticed that he wasn't reading the music and he was just she would play it for him he would hear it he would memorize it. he would memorize it immediately and and not even use the music. And but he a, would
1: transpose it into C. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: he probably started in C and never left C. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the people's key. Uh, it, right. is, it's right. the people's it is the people's key. It's I love a great C. key. <laughs> but uh yeah, so we, you know, we that was the that was the beginning of it. I mean, just having his uh, model uh, of playing music. But then when we got into school, um, You know, well, we should start earlier than that. Actually, our mom and dad met in a folk dance group uh, in Stockton, California. They used to go to regularly uh, go to folk dances at the University of the Pacific in uh, outside of Stockton, and uh, so they met there. They fell in love. They got married. We were the first uh, kids to come along.
1: So they really went into kids right away. With yeah, twins. and
0: and and the folk dancing kind of fell by the wayside. And uh, what, what was your mother's background?
1: Where did had she come from? California uh,
0: native. California native. Um, her family was from Arcata, California, right. and she grew up in Oak Oakdale. Dale. Oakdale. Yeah. Any Near music in family. her side of the family? Not really. And the interesting part about my mom was she lost her hearing when she was. Um, Uh, about 16 and my mom too yeah (laughs) so we grew up with having she could maybe hear a little bit but not very much she was pretty much deaf you had to speak right at her and speak slowly and she can maybe get a little bit of what you were saying so we had to be very demonstrative and lively, animated animated and I think that's what drove us into performance because we had (laughs) to um, be lively (laughs) <laughs> um, that was the other thing. But here's, uh, so we're going to go back to the present. So my mom was pretty much deaf from the time she was a teenager to when she turned 80. And because of modern technology, she was able to regain her hearing due to cochlear implants in both ears. And here's the other thing <laughs> my, uh, all our siblings, and we have, Three more siblings. They all had some hearing loss, also, but we missed that genetic bullet. Which we didn't is get that like wow. crazy. Yeah. So, uh, so they all had cochlear implants too, and they can also hear. So, about um, what? A few years ago. Few years ago, we did a concert down in the Bay Area, and my mom came, and she sat in the front row. And and afterwards, I said, "Mom, how was it?" And she said. Uh, I heard every word, and and I said, at least you didn't
1: say we sucked. <laughs> <laughs> heard every word and heard every note. Yes, yeah, she heard it
0: all. And uh, so now, when we get together, with the family's just yak 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 yak. We have all this pent up stuff we have to you say. You know, to many each other. years of not talking because we couldn't.
1: Right, yeah. you've always been shy, both of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? So, was that a traumatic experience initially? When she first had the implants, I mean, was that moment when it was overwhelming for her or for for her, her? For her Well,
0: I think you know our mom, the thing about her is she's very game. She's willing to try anything. she's a very playful person, playful person and she and you know that's something we got from her. Yeah. you know will, willing to be, you know, don't worry about you know playing the clown or being the fool. She doesn't embarrass. And I think the way the therapy works is they ease you into it. And basically, it's replacing all those teeny tiny hairs in your cochlea with 16 electronic sensors. And so you can actually control with a computer the EQ just like on a soundboard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
1: That's fascinating, yeah. Yeah, Because here, obviously, we're here to talk about music and a medium of music, which is the violin, particularly. Yeah, you you guys play. Yeah, numerous instruments. Yeah. But uh, you know, and how important the hearing is for all of us. I mean, gotta have it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, how? But how the ear. Understands what this is coming out of this piece of wood. Oh. Is something I find interesting. There was one fellow I interviewed who went into one of these, um, it's kind of an isolation chamber where there is absolutely no sound. Right, right. At all. And nothing reflects back, right. however it's done. And when he played the violin, it was excruciatingly painful and distasteful. Right. And I thought that was so interesting that it, you, the violin only becomes alive within the context of this environment of
0: stuff for it to bounce off of yes, <laughs> yes. including ears yeah. including <laughs> ears but yeah, yeah oh yeah and often um uh, a little trick that i used to do when i was if i was looking at a fiddle to buy uh is i would take it into a car inside of a car because there's all these hard surfaces and if it was it would sound the worst it was going to sound in there <laughs> 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 you know and uh but uh, speaking about, I, I we were talking about this the other day, how um, uh, you know, I was a kid. Uh, we when we were, I think we were about four or five years old. Our parents went to a, a, a reunion of their folk dance group, and it was at a state park, and in California. And I remember we drove up, and I could hear. Uh, Fiddle music, and it was the first time I think I'd ever heard fiddle music. I could hear these notes kind of jumping through the air, and and uh, and we went up into this little hall, uh, little hall, little redwood hall, and there was a guy with black curly hair. He had a violin, and a he uh, by his foot he had a drummer's foot pedal connected to a maraca, and <laughs> that was his rhythm. And he was playing. I think it was probably a polka, and people there were couples dancing. You know. And uh, I, I thought that was really cool, you know, but I was five years old. And um, so we had lunch on the picnic tables outside. And afterwards, he, he sat there on the picnic table. I guess he put me up on the table and he put his violin under my chin and and let me hold the bow and help me, you know, take it across the, the strings. And that was the first time I ever touched a violin. I was five years old. And it's amazing to me that five years later, I was playing the violin, you know,
1: so that was my first little touch. (laughs) There's this thing called second phase childhood amnesia, which I've only learned about recently because of a a project I worked in where I was trying to find a family of an African-American woman who took care of me. And uh, so I talked to Dan Siegel from UCLA, who's an expert in this field, and he talked about this, that basically we really have memory, if I understood what he was saying. We we retain memory up to about the age of five or six, and suddenly it all gets wiped clean. We have maybe a couple memories, but that's it. The rest is gone. And it's called, I think it's what he, he called it, second stage childhood amnesia, which I found fascinating. But this memory is still with you.
0: Oh, I think about it all the time. And, you know, and I, th- I I, don't think I have that amnesia thing. I remember everything. I remember stuff from when I was a baby. I remember crawling around on the floor, looking up at the chairs from underneath. And, yeah, I remember everything. <laughs> well, I have a few of those memories, but not much.
1: <laughs> now, are you identical twins? Yeah. We
0: are. We're from the same egg. Um, like many identical twins, we are mirror images. So I'm right-handed. Greg's so left-handed. Handed. Yeah um that often happens when an egg splits so you got oh. it's just the way it works with twins a lot
1: well with all this twin study of course i Mm. Little bits of it that yeah. I'm familiar with. I love uh, you know, we're twins that are separated at birth and find each other when they're 15. Isn't that and, fascinating? I and mean, they show up with red shirts and, you know. How and it and an op- their
0: wives have the same name and they drink the same beer. Yeah, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. That's- and their wives drink the same beer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: that's getting deep now. Now we're really getting yeah. deep. <laughs> but they're that right. is fascinating are oh, identical twins. <laughs> but here's the thing, of course, is at some point in this journey, and you've begun the story, which I, yeah, I yeah. think is great. You guys have diverged into playing a single sound, but with different instruments. Right. Yes. So I'm yeah. fascinated. Anything you can say about that process and how sure. instruments got chosen?
0: So, so what happened was uh, <laughs> in elementary school, I took uh, clarinet and saxophone up into junior high school. And then when I got to high school, I quit playing the sax. And when I was a sophomore... My dad said, Hey, your grades are pretty good. And do do you want an instrument or something? And I said, How about a guitar? So he bought me a guitar. And then immediately, I just, that's all I wanted to do. And and your grades. And my grades just <laughs> kind of went, meh. <"Nee."> uh, <laughs> that happened to me. Yesterday. Yeah, fact, yeah. <laughs> eventually like it led to
1: me being kicked out of high school because I was in the park strumming away for some young <laughs> girl with my well, friends. Well, that's the other side. You that know. was the when other Jerry side, When Jerry started playing the guitar, I noticed that
0: all the girls were hanging out with Jerry. They yeah. weren't hanging out with me. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so Greg got his violin out at that point and started trying to figure things out on the violin. Yeah.
1: And how did your first violin come to you? Well, that,
0: that was that's good. Uh, uh, you know, they, they sent, sent us home one day in the end of the fifth grade with a little paper, said, you know, we're going to start instrumental instruction, any of these instruments you can choose. And on that list was the cello. And I said, God, I don't really know what the cello is, but I think I want to play that. <laughs> so I brought it home, and my mom and dad looked at it, and they said, well, I don't we don't, don't want to spring for a cello uh but but your aunt uh, florence has a, a violin. violin in her attic and so next time we went to stockton we got the got the violin and then we had a a, a neighbor next door sally who was a violinist and she just started teaching me you know it was, it wasn't a fine instrument you know <laughs> it had a little decal on the back that said allied musical arts or something um but uh I was really proud of it, you know. And I, you know, started going through the book with my, the help of my neighbor. And so by the time I got to my first real lesson with the teacher that came to the school every week, I, I kind of, I knew the strings, you know, and I knew, I, I knew my first finger on my A-string. So I, it was exciting. I, it was really exciting to me.
1: <laughs> and luckily, you're the right-handed one.
0: I'm the left-handed.
1: Oh, you are. So you that. were learning... A right-handed fiddle?
0: Well, yeah, but here's the thing: it's a distinct advantage, on, I think, on the violin to be left-handed because that's your nice. fingering hand. And uh, so it just—it always made sense to me. The other—the other part of that was, I've known plenty of left-handed fiddlers that have to, you know, buy a right-handed instrument, have it switched over to yeah. be yeah.
1: left-handed. Bass bar. Yeah, everything,
0: you know, and it's. It just makes sense to me to play to play right-handed if you're left-handed because yeah. you've got those fingers that work really well.
1: <laughs> and, and you have a universe of possible instruments. Yeah. they yeah. can come into your life at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah.
0: And in the case of the violin, it's a vast universe too. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. 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 But um, you, you should talk about your violins, Greg. Yeah, can I talk about that? You
1: sure can. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: okay, good. Uh I, you know, I had a succession of violins, uh, you know, I think out of out of high school, I bought a violin from my uh, dentist's assistant. Uh, she'd played in college, and she had a pretty good instrument, and uh, she, you know, she'd gotten married, and she wasn't playing anymore. Was and, that the instrument that ended up getting destroyed? Oh, no, uh... It could have been that one, I think. Anyway, you should tell that. Uh, well, that's story. another story. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, so uh, uh, you know, we were when uh, I was in Seattle, and we had a friend who was working to learn how to repair and build uh, violins, and he was working in a violin shop, and uh, his name is Barry Schultz, and he he came over, and or he called me up, and he said. Uh, you know, I heard you were looking for an instrument, I can bring some over. And I said, great, that's great. Um, So I said, I think I have two or three instruments. Meanwhile, back at the shop where he was working, the the guy Herman, uh, who owned the shop, had run into a woman at a concert and she said, Herman, there's this violin that I put on consignment at your shop 10 years ago. And did you ever sell it? And I want the money, you know. <laughs> and uh, so Herman came in and saw Barry and said, "Barry, you got to find this thing," you know. Described it to him, and it's it's it was it's in an old house in the, in Seattle, rigger. and yeah. um, so he he found this thing, and it turned out to be a pretty pretty old instrument. So. He brought it over with some other ones. I played the other ones. Oh, that one has a pretty good bass end. Oh, that one sounds good. And then I played this one. I just thought it had a really sweet, woody sound. Yeah. That, you know, that it, it, it didn't sound harsh. And it had a real smoothness, especially on the upper strings. And so, uh, so I said, God, this, this is a nice sounding. And then the way it looked, it just looked like it had been uh, cared for. You know, it, 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 like the, uh, like the edges were all kind of worn down and the, the, uh, the top of the scroll looked like it had been lovingly set in the case thousands of times. And, Mm -hmm. and anyway, so I took it down to Oregon. We were doing some gigs down in Oregon, uh, did some square dances and a couple of, uh, concerts. And I came back and Barry, said, well, there's a couple of cracks open, open up. So let me fix those. So anyway, I got the thing for, uh, about a thousand dollars, including the repairs. And it's called, it's a Thomas Perry violin. He was a maker that worked out of Dublin from about the, uh, 1760s till about the, say, 1880s or 1820s, excuse me. And, uh, you know, Thomas Perry violins are kind of well known, especially in Ireland. And all the Irish players really like, like him. And he's been called the, like the Irish Stradivarius. But he's not, you know, he. the interesting thing is that it's based on kind of an English model. It's not a, not, doesn't look like an Italian instrument. So consequently, it's not really valued by, uh, by violinists or classical players. But the folk, uh, players and, uh, people who play Irish tradition music really like them. And, uh,
1: this is my fascination with this whole project in so many ways is not just the quality the instruments are trying to define its sound, but all this mythology, yes, all this collective yeah. cultural memory and, and other things we project into the, like the image mm. of oh yeah the, the thousands of times that lovingly had been put back into its case. <laughs> yes. I mean, we begin to imagine this. And I think that that's not just fanciful. I mean, it is fanciful. But there's something in this that is speaking to some deeper memory or some idea there's other narratives. Uh,
0: absolutely. absolutely. I mean, you all, how many times have I heard, oh, I wish this violin could talk you know, and tell me yeah. w- what music was played on it, who played it, you know, where did they live? And, uh, and that's one project that I took on was I have on my computer, <laughs> I have uh, the story of my violin. And I add to it all the time about you know where i played and what i played and but also what i know about the instrument and i found out more and more about the instrument as time goes on and so i'm going to put that maybe you know put it in the case or put it in the instrument even before i die so that will go with my violin and wherever it goes that story will be there so that instrument is probably from 8 in seventeen, what? the well, I have actually I have two of them now. I have one from uh, the seventeen nineties, which is which, that one. Which is that one, and then I have one from the from probably about ten years older, seventeen eighties, and uh, that uh, my violin guy Dwayne Lasley, uh, you know, found somewhere, and it was kind of, you know, stuck together. It was the original box, but a different uh, neck and. Uh, everything else, and he just knew that I loved my instrument. And he said, "He said you should have this," and he just gave it to me. <laughs> and you know, and it's also very sweet, obviously from the same maker, and it has a wonderful sound.
1: Let's return to Jerry and Greg's music, and a little of Cluck Old Hen from their CD, Uke Snacks. <laughs> been talking about how violence come into our our keeping because yeah. often we are custodians these things outlive us yeah, yeah. A, as they should <laughs> uh but sometimes one of them something dreadful happens oh
0: yeah i, yeah, I have a story uh for my first my first marriage i was married pretty young i think it was like 22 or something like that and uh my wife uh it, it, as it developed my wife was really jealous of the music and uh, she and she was. Kind of, it turned out she was kind of clinical, and uh, <laughs> so at one point she was mad at me, and she I wasn't home, and she opened my violin case, and she happened to have a screwdriver handy. <laughs> yeah, she had a little toolbox, and <laughs> <laughs> she, she took a screwdriver, and and she went. Wow! She wham, punched wham. through the top of this thing. And, uh, several times, yeah, several times, and it, it you know, it was, a, it was kind of a nice, it was a modern instrument, but it was a nice sounding instrument, and um, you know, I hung. Needless to say, we didn't stay together. Uh, <laughs> I said to Greg, "This is a sign from God that you should leave this, that you should leave this marriage immediately." <laughs> and I did, but yeah. uh, but uh, I, I carried around the pieces for a long time, and our friend Armand Barnett. Who's a violin builder and repair guy? He uh, he said I can make a top for it, and he made a top for it, and it sounded great. And I and, and I think event- I eventually sold it at a, at a fiddle tunes one year. Yeah, here.
1: And did you sell it with that story? As you're going? Oh to put, sure, I told oh, the story.
0: Yeah. Because oh, that's a funny yeah, ju- that's yeah. a funny juju
1: to go with an yeah. instrument. Really. That's a violent yeah. act. That really. Yeah, is. it's
0: a violent act and. Uh, the thing is you know you kind of and then then you kind of had to rescue the instrument yes. you know and 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 give it some good good uh, good juju <laughs> yeah I, I think
1: a lot of people a lot of houses are like this you know there was some divorce or or death of a child yeah. or something, and you move into the house and you <laughs> sense it or you might know the story or whatever and maybe you know you have things that happen in the house that turn that all around. We have a big gathering every Thanksgiving in our house. Our house was built in 1912. Uh, No, 1914, excuse me. It just had its 100th anniversary. And uh, we do a big Thanksgiving Day get-together of musicians, you know, the orphans. People don't have a family to go to. But we get a big crowd. And I've often thought that those vibrations of course the joyfulness oh. of this old time music going into every uh, every atom in that house absolutely, absolutely. just gives yeah. it a different life
0: <laughs> we we have a story about that but one of for years one of our day jobs was painting houses and we were working on a house <laughs> one time and uh, the people hadn't moved in yet it was an old seattle uh bungalow bungalow really beautiful house and and uh, so we, know, we came in and we noticed that there was a, a burning candle in the middle of the living room. And then we heard this woman and she was like ringing a bell and burning sage and walking all around the house. And we talked to her for a little bit. And she'd been hired to psychically clear the house, kind of, yeah. a, of those vibrations and weird stuff. And so, <laughs> so anyway, I was painting the living room and I, you know, paint, finished one wall and I stepped back to admire my handiwork and uh, and I almost knocked over this uh, this candle that was uh, sitting there, and she says, "Careful, there's a vortex." <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> <laughs> so I almost stepped into the vortex. Yeah. But the other thing was, we talked to her, and she said, and you know, while we paint, we always laugh and tell stories and, you and know, talk. And she goes, "You guys are doing my job for me, really, because you're touching every wall." And you're filling the rooms with laughter, and I thought that that is so great, you know. Yeah, well, five hundred dollars, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. I think getting, that's what she charged. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't getting paid enough.
1: Paid enough. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about playing with fiddlers, uh, um, your brother, but this idea of what does it take to play with this music
0: you know the your main job as a guitar player a rhythm player is really to be solid uh candy goldman our friend and banjo player says the um the guitar is the bed on which the fiddle bounces and i (laughs) I love that you know so you want to be firm (laughs) <laughs> like but not too firm <laughs> But you, you want to be loose Yeah, You, you kind of want to be loose and firm at the same time But you really want to provide A nice solid rhythm for the And you know every fiddler Hears the beat At a different rate and, so every guitar you, player too. and every guitar player too So you have to do some adjustment when you play with new players And it always takes a tune or two I had a, an experience with um, Armin Barnett He hears the beat just on the very front end of the beat. So, when I first played with him, I thought, he's he's speeding up you know, all the time. And, and I would speed up to catch up with him, and we'd be going lickety-splitting about two times through the tune. And finally we stopped and I said, oh, I get what's going on, you hear the beat ahead of me. So I just had to relax a little bit, and just keep playing, and just kind of get used to his beat a little bit ahead of me. See, I had that experience yesterday where I was sitting in a session and a guitar player came in, yeah, and she she was a good solid guitar player, but I just felt like she was rushing, yeah, and I I had to excuse myself <laughs> <laughs> because it was too hard for me to. I felt like I was having to speed up, right? And so right. It, so it, there was it it added attention to the music. That you that didn't d- want to. That you didn't there. want to have to deal with. Yeah. Well, I, I just
1: interviewed. Uh, do you know David Bass? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And we got to interview him at Mount Airy. And uh, what's unusual, of course, he's had tremendous problems with his heart through his entire right, life, right, right, and right. And then eventually had an entire transplant. Right. So you know, there's, we're human beings. We're all interested in those stories. right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. how did that change your sense of music? How much does the heartbeat have to do with what you do? And uh, he really didn't talk about that initially. He just said, well, the doctor said this would happen, and it worked, and you know, didn't really have a story about how it changed anything in his music. But later in the interview, which I thought was very interesting, <laughs> he had done a lot of street performing, and he performs in the subways in New York for many years, and then he performs for dancers, but also in concerts. And he began to explain that you play just slightly ahead of the heartbeat of your audience so if they're if they're kind of rushing along in new york walking quickly you would play just a little faster and you'd get their attention they'd look at you and you'd have this thing going oh that's interesting but when they were sitting in a concert he would play slower tunes but just slightly ahead of what he perceived their heartbeat to be and i thought here's a guy who thinks about the heart so (laughs) much (laughs) because he's been tenuous all his life yeah and he's paying attention isn't that cool Wow, that's
0: interesting story yeah well, that, so, you know, uh, so what's the standard uh, resting heartbeat uh, probably in the
1: 80s maybe or 60s,
0: somewhere in there?
1: Oh, and, heartbeats are, fa- the whole history yeah. or the, the uh, physiology of heartbeats, Malcolm Gladwell, the writer, yeah. uh, talked about what happens when your heartbeat gets up uh, well over 100, I think it's almost close to 200 heartbeats uh, a, a minute when you're really stressed. And suddenly you get tunnel vision and everything disappears. It's because it's absolutely survival mode. Oh, yeah. yeah. Any distraction is is gone. You're you're absolutely tunnel vision. Yeah. And he was talking about a particular police officer who had, uh, also you lose your hearing. You completely lose your hearing. And so sometimes when these police officers have uh, shot somebody like six, ten times, they don't hear the gun going off they're pulling the trigger, they don't hear it because they're, they're so hyped up on the, right, the, right. the yeah. moment, the adrenaline. And I thought that was, you know, and that was a different way to view what normally we would think was just this, you know, tremendously, uh, you know, brutal police thing that had happened. And he kind of deconstructed that around what was going on with the heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing I heard, and I, I would like to know if this is true, but I just heard this recently. Now we're getting <laughs> It's either folklore or science. Yeah. Is that every animal has essentially the same number of heartbeats allotted to it in its natural life right. span. So if it happens to be a hummingbird or something, it's beating so much faster, so it will only live that many years or that right, many. Right, right. And an elephant's heartbeats very slow will live a lot longer. But then we all have the same number of heartbeats. I love that.
0: That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, universal. We're, yeah, we're all tied
1: together. Yeah. <laughs> so... uh you know, I mean, I got to f- oh, go ahead.
0: Well, I I was thinking about heartbeats and just um, how fast people play tunes. Like, as we get older, we really tend to play slower, and we like that kind of back porch. You know, right between uh, ninety and a hundred. That's where Beats we like, like to be. It's and really, and I wonder how that correlates. Well, we both have kind of slow heart rates because uh, um, we, we both have uh, atrial fibrillation, atrial, and we a- fib. yeah drugs to keep our heartbeats low. You do? Yeah. yeah. So um so we have slow heartbeats and we like to play slow. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And 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 you know uh and the way we express it to other musicians is, you know, feel the groove, um be in the moment and just kinda of let the tune breathe. You know?
1: That's very much how uh I and my wife play. And our guitar player Forrest Newton, you know Forrest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we played as a trio quite a few times. Oh, I love that. And uh, his greatest compliment to us was, uh, "There's breathing going on here. There's space between the notes. Yeah, yeah. And wow. it's restful and yet invigorating. And I, you know, I considered that. I, I was very flattered by that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, it's 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 really important.
1: I see it so
0: often. Uh, I see the other side of it. People that are just starting out or have have less experience, they'll tend to play faster. And they'll tend to slur notes together and kind of make a mess of it a little bit. And I always tell new students, play as slow as you have to to get a good, clean, every note counts kind of sound. Um, but I see it over and over again that people play too fast for yeah. their own ability. And I think I think there's yeah. this uh, this idea that it's supposed to be fast. Yeah. And uh, you know I mean it is dance music and when you're playing for a dance and know. if you can play that fast and cleanly it sounds great. Yeah yeah. But so yeah. often I just hear people playing too fast. Now I've been paying attention recently to metronome uh uh markings and and um it's really interesting you know like you get a room full of people maybe an uh, an older group 110 beats per minute 109 110 111 somewhere there. But you get a young group, and you want to go 120, 125, <laughs> yeah. 132. This is like playing for contours and square dancing. Too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's a real. That's so a real we play thing. a lot of dance camps, and we have we have tuners that have metronomes on them, and they're on our instruments. So you could just see what the metronome reading is while you're playing oh that's really fascinating yeah, yeah yeah it's just a recent thing that well john doing.
1: hartford had that uh he put out a cd of tunes which i i like um i think it was uh hamilton ironworks i believe that was the cd but basically he would do a little sort of story a very short little thing about where he got the tune from yeah and one of them is about some old timer who would play at a certain speed And the young people would always get on. him like, come on, you know, speed it up. One time he just got so mad, he took out a knife and chased him out of the (laughs) hall. He he played one speed, and by God, that's what it was, you know? (laughs) And I like that old, uh, that stubborn determination. I mean, it could be a pain in the butt, too. But this idea of the older people who weren't playing to some other imposed idea of how the commercial market works. Exactly. And you would think, you know, the commercial market doesn't have anything to do with folk music. Well, that's not true because over time, everything in America, whatever we do, is being influenced by this marketplace perception or assumption. Might even be a wrong assumption that somebody wants that. Yeah, but uh, (laughs) we feel the pressure all the time. Yeah, and the novelty factor is is a big part of it. It's like you know, it's got to have that novelty aspect.
0: Well, that's an interesting part of uh, music, anyway. I mean, you can play music for yourself and your own amusement. And that's pretty often just a mellow, like tunes are. You sit around, you play tunes. It brings you enjoyment, especially when you perceive everything fits together perfectly. So, I mean, we all have this experience of the perfect trio. So you have a banjo player, a guitar player, and a fiddle player, and you're playing in a place where you can hear every note. And, and you're nice and warm and, and comfortable. And that wonderful <laughs> sense of well-being when you play a tune together, and it's like one unit, and you everything meshes. I love that, and I, and I live for that feeling. <laughs>
2: um, but
0: then there's the other thing of performing, and that brings a whole other element that brings um, finances into it. it. It brings show business into it. And when we perform a concert, we have all kinds of shtick and we say funny stuff when we do jokes and uh greg scat sings and you know it's a whole other thing but But it's kind of organic that's the thing it's not like we studied it you know it's just like we've done it so many times that we're comfortable and so we just become ourselves when we get on stage and (laughs) and we just get to be ourselves and and have a good time yeah
1: so of course, there's this idea that of all the other people you could play with, when you do play with a twin, you get there quicker, don't you? You do. Oh. And when
0: we rehearse, we often find that um, <laughs> that we have to rehearse early in the day. <laughs> we or we'll, fall asleep. Or we'll fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, when we rehearse, it's easy to put together stuff, um, and we think the same way. So if we have um, kind of arranging ideas or how to put together a tune. Or what the chords might be we we pretty much agree all the way through, and it happens pretty fast, so yeah. but the the other thing as we get older, <laughs> we've noticed that it's harder for us to learn new material, so what we do is we go back to old material that we don't perform anymore, and, and we just select from that, and that is all in long term memory, so it's a lot so easier to, to learn. <laughs> learn a song
1: we used to sing, the words all come back one hundred percent, yeah. Before we wrap this up with a discussion about the Festival of American Fiddle Tunes, let's have a little of the tune Pony Boy. Festival. It's not the festival of American folk music or string music, right? This is the festival of American fiddle tunes. So, tell me about this festival. What you know of its inception and sure. your involvement over the time, and what you've seen happen here for people. Oh boy! Go, Jerry. Good. Right, <laughs> you go. You start. Well, we we were um,
0: we were in our twenties uh, and we were starting to get into this music, and we had some friends. We were down in the Bay Area uh, San Francisco Bay area. And, uh, somebody, a friend of ours, uh, uh, Gary had, had heard about this fest that they were starting a festival up here. And, uh, he, he had a little flyer and I remember we were having some tunes over at his house. And he brought out this flyer and it said festival American fiddle tunes. And it said, uh, it said how much it was. And it wasn't I think very it was $60. much. Yeah, it wasn't very much. <laughs> and it was a week long. And it also said, uh, "To come to this camp, you must send a an audition tape." <laughs> so, and that that was what Bertram had thought of. I think in the beginning. So we just sent in this audition tape. We sat at our living, I mean, our kitchen table and made a little tape. And <laughs> uh, and I didn't think that. Um, I didn't feel like. You had to play perfectly, or you wouldn't get in. You know, I just thought. They, I think they were just trying to see what level what of people level students were at. And later on, we came to that first one, and it was 1978 when we first came here. That was the second. It was second the second festival. second actual festival. But the thing that struck us was how friendly everybody was up here. And we knew some of the musicians just by reputation, but people like Warren Argo and um, Peter McCracken. They were so welcoming to us. I felt like I am part of this tribe. And (laughs) that was a very important thing for me. These are our people. We met our people, you know. And everybody wanted to play with us. And uh, that was really important. And then later on, I saw Bertram, and and he said, hey, I really liked your audition tape. (laughs) (laughs) So that made me feel good. Do you guys
1: remember what tune you played on
0: it? That's a great question. It was probably something like Forked Deer. I mean that was one of the tunes we played a lot back then. Yeah. I mean very say. well could have been Forked Deer. Yeah. Uh yeah. But but you know as uh of course we had friends in in the greater bay area in Santa Cruz and and uh, uh Sonoma County and up in there. And so we all started, you know, kind of making the pilgrimage uh, up to and then we met all the Seattle musicians and so we start there started being a connection and then we started coming up before and staying after the festival and uh, and that's kind of how we ended up moving to uh to Seattle well the other thing that happened oh, um, yeah and this would be a little well it'd still be in that time frame yeah. 7980 yeah. we met Sandy Bradley and Sandy was, calling dances and over in the USO building she uh, was calling square dances every night and she needed a band and we just kind of heard uh, through the grapevine here that she needed a band to play for dances and we said we can do that and we started (laughs) playing with her and she had all these crazy ideas about how to make the dancers dance better using the music so she would say when they are walking clip the off beats a little bit Mm 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 And they'll make that'll make them lift their feet, and then she said, when they swing, just lay into it and uh, hit it hard and, and, and let, let it ring, ring. Yeah. and that'll make them swing better, you know. And I don't know how. I guess it works a little bit, but um, we called it the training, you know. So because we eventually worked with Sandy Bradley for many years, we worked with her for a long time. Yeah, and we did, you know, we did dances. We went all over the country. I think we played in every state. Except, Except for m- Mississippi, Hawaii and Maine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but we played dances, we did concerts, we You were the small wonders? small yeah, Wonders string, string, Wonder, string band. band yeah. Sandy Bradley and the Small Wonder String Band. And uh and we worked with you know, New York we went to New York City. We would we did this thing, we called it Fly Till You Die. It was Eastern Airlines had a, a deal where for six hundred dollars you could do twenty one flight segments. And you could uh, go anywhere they flew in the but States. But you always went back to Atlanta. So <laughs> you started, you flew to Atlanta, you flew to Boulder, Colorado, you did a concert or a dance. There was always a party afterwards. We were 30, by the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we could do it. <laughs> there, there was always a concert. I mean, there was always a party afterwards. And then you'd get up in the morning and fly back to Atlanta and then fly to New York and then you'd do a concert or a dance, and there was always a party afterwards. I mean, we got completely wrecked doing that. But we had a great time. Right, yeah.
1: so if you are in San Francisco, you fly back to Atlanta to go to Seattle. Oh, yeah, kind yeah, of so like that. that's yeah. the frustration when <laughs> yeah, it yeah, was yeah, just yeah. up the road a little bit. Yeah, oh, yeah.
0: Oh, those were the days. Yeah, yeah, I remember doing Washington, D.C., and then <laughs> but going back to Atlanta, and then going to Boston. And yeah. then, and, yeah. But um, <laughs> meeting Sandy here was a big influence on us, and she had played with the Gypsy Jippo string band, so, which is an early uh, string band in in, was in this. Bob, so, was Bob Nesson Bob Nesson Ness Ness and we met Jack Link and Warren Argo. Warren. Warren Argo and Warren. We were great friends with Warren. We loved that guy, and mm-hmm. we played with him when we could, you know. Yeah. Um, but but coming up here to Seattle to the Seattle area was, was really uh, form forming for us. It
1: was important.
0: Yeah. yeah, and it was about the music. It was because of the music. Yeah.
1: yeah. See, I love that part of it too. It, there was, I don't know if it was a Twilight Zone or some episode, <laughs> basically, where Edgar Allan Poe and, and uh, Dickens, their ghosts, are on the other side. And then when people stop reading their book, <laughs> it might have been a Ray Bradbury story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They literally fade away, you know, because uh, there's no, no memory uh, of them. Uh, yeah. And we're talking about Jack Link, we're yeah. talking about Warren. yeah. These yeah. are people who are gone. Yeah, You know, but have been in the music in that river that we've all been he, in. Yeah. Jack
0: Link was very influential for me. Uh, Jerry had gone down to, in 1974, and I I, I kind of count that as the year that I became a fiddler. And uh, Jerry had gone down to Sweets Mill uh, down in California. in California. And he came back and they had these tapes of Jack Link playing Gold Rush and a, couple, a few other tunes. And I learned those things religiously. And Jack did, you know... Uh, he Everything. had a he had a real interesting style where he just he actually was a shuffle fiddler, you know, da 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 da, da. but he really made it made it sound great, and uh, and I remember learning tunes from from Jack, and then later when we met Jack up here, you know, I remember we did a little song at the end of the. Oh, yeah. Whole thing at the first one we came to, and he came and he goes, "Who are you guys?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. we got together with him, played some tunes, and yeah. got to know
1: him. Yeah, and a great guitar player. Yeah. yeah, oh,
0: wonderful. And and we realized later on that we had seen him play. Uh, I think it was probably 1971 at the Berkeley Fiddlers Convention. I think they had two or three of them at that time. But I think that was earlier. I think it was more like 69. Am I no, we 70? were already in college. Yeah, I think it was '70. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing about that Berkeley Fiddlers Convention, so we, we heard Jack Link, we heard um, Bertram was there, and we also heard... Wearing Bermuda shorts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and we also heard um, the Highwoods. We heard Walt Cokin uh, and, 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 and Bob Potts. And Bob Potts. And Jack was playing guitar with them at that time. And so um, Greg went off, and he came back, and he says, Jerry, you got to hear this sound. (laughs) It sounds like a beehive on fire. (laughs) (laughs) And and there was a big uh, live oak tree behind the stage, and there was a knot of of fiddlers and banjo players playing. I think they're playing Little Rabbit or something like that. And just... And you know how the highwoods used to bounce. And they, they, they would bounce up and down when they played. And it just had this great sound. And Yeah, beehive on fire. Beehive. That was it. That made a big impression on that's me. That's I, I, That's what I want to do. That's yeah. what I want to do. Yeah. yeah.
1: So what do you see happening with the festival in recent years? Uh, you're watching a new generation come in. Oh. Is it getting transferred, this passion, really Absolutely. to enough young people? It's, it's
0: quite amazing, actually. So this year I'm working... In the kids bands, and I and it's quite amazing. So there's like 70 kids.
1: And explain how they do the kids bands. Um,
0: so they have uh, they have several programs. They have um, fiddle classes, but they also have a kids band, and David Romvet puts it together. And what he does is he picks a couple songs from one of the featured artists. One of the featured artists. So um, this year it's the Savoie family and Pedro Dimas. And um, and so the kids learn these tunes as kind of an honor, to, to honor those those artists. And, it's and, a and then Pedro,
1: this is Mexican music, Mexican, just to give a yeah. sense. Because there's a lot of international music represented here. Absolutely. And that's
0: something we've seen all along at Fiddle Tunes. There's always been, um, they always try to get some, the featuring fiddle, Always, but um, from other places too. And right, you know, which is
1: almost you know kind of a confusion in the title. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's called a festival of American fiddle. Yeah. Well, it's it's more a music camp than a festival. Yeah. Now there yeah. are performances uh, usually public performances. Yeah. yeah public yeah. performances, but then yeah. the week is people playing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, you wouldn't think of a festival as being a camp. Yeah. And then it's American fiddle tunes, when in fact you have great Swedish players that come. Oh. You have great Irish. And Irish players you know, and
0: Scottish players and uh, Canadian players. So yeah, yeah. I love that. And French Canadians. So you get But the, but the thing about kids, I mean, we, we've really noticed this. Uh, you know, we got into it in our twenties. We were at the age where we were hooking up with the partners and and then having kids. Well, our ki- we didn't grow up with the mu- music that we play, but our kids grew did. up with. They grew up with because we, you know, stayed in the music, and all the people that we knew played and they had kids. They all play and they and maybe they went away from it at some point, but then they came back to it. And we know so many uh, really great players of our generation that have kids that they play with now, you know, like Rafe and Claylia. And and, and so that uh, the very first day of the kids program, David just said to the kids, so how many of you play music with your parents? And two-thirds of them raised their hand. So that blew my mind right there. That's That means that the music's going to carry on and it's also going to develop. And so last... Uh, <laughs> week here at the fort they had um voice works and they had a concert of father father daughter mother son you know different uh they call it blood harmony but um it was really fascinating to hear so um carl jones and kelly jones sava his daughter they sang together and mm-hmm. it was an amazing sound. But it just, <laughs> what it brought to mind for me was how the children will always um, kind of make it their own and
1: bring their own culture. They'll bring it. something to it. Yeah. Well, then let me ask one last question. In the classical music world, you have a tremendous number of uh, uh, young people. Learning Suzuki and learning the classical repertoire becoming very good Mm -hmm. because they're starting early. I mean, the the level of play is unquestionably much higher. And then you have the availability of really quite decent sounding instruments at a very affordable price. Yeah. You know, that's that's that whole China thing. And people have feelings that go across the spectrum on that. Yeah. But now some of these young people did not grow up around this folk tradition at all, but they're now in their 20s coming over. And playing this music. Yeah. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. Some cynical reasons, well, that's a very crowded world to make your mark anymore. Yeah. Right, right. You know, but if you have those licks, you can come into this world and, and be quite a sensation. Right. And but that's a cynical view. I think there's something deeper in that. They're looking for something that puts this music now. I'm prejudicial. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm more the folk musician. So are we. So yeah, are we. okay. Yeah. All right. So who's ever listening to this interview knows. Yeah. Sorry <laughs> there's the disclaimer. How can this festival, and also your your work, because I know yeah. it's uh, involved, bring them into this tradition so that they understand it's not just about playing those notes and playing them beautifully with great energy and skill, but there's an entire social understanding that comes with this.
0: Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's as much, you know, it's about the music, but it's also about the people. And every, t- you know, when I play a tune, I think, where who did I learn this tune from who did I play it with last you know who who else plays this tune and and you know it's 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 so much more than the notes and uh when I and when so when I teach I really try to put that across you know whenever I play a tune I always try to say I learned this tune from so-and-so or this tune came from so-and-so yeah and I also uh I know we're just students and, and my own feeling about skills, especially musical skills, I was looking for an authentic experience. I mean, of my own, just the way I put it. But, and when I heard that Harry Smith anthology back in the late 70s, I went, this is the music I want to play because it spoke to me. And I said, gosh darn it, I'm an American, and I'm going to play American music. <laughs> <laughs> but I was looking for something authentic that means something to me, and I think that I see that happening with, with younger kids and even people um, my own age that are they, It It moves them when they hear this music. Yeah, I mean, when you hear it, and And it does something to it. you you realize it's your music. Jerry's wife, Julie, tells a great story about uh, she used to work in a little store and uh, and she was playing some old-time music on the on the sound, system. and this couple came in and they listened for a while, and they said, "Oh, that's old-time music." And my wife said, "Yeah, don't you love it?" And they said, "We hate it. <laughs> it's the same thing over and over again." Our daughter plays it, and she loves it. <laughs> but they they didn't quite get it, you know. <laughs> we hate it. <laughs> it's the same thing over and over again. Um.
1: Well, gentlemen, a genuine pleasure. Oh, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And let's finish now with a personal story. You see, I was also born a twin, an identical twin, but that only meant trouble for me. You see, when we were kids, if a neighbor saw my brother do something wrong, I was the one who usually got punished for it because they couldn't tell us apart. And if I wasn't paying attention after supper, my brother would get two desserts and I'd have to go to bed hungry. And when we got older, I fell in love. She was a very sweet girl, we planned to get married. And on our wedding day, as I was driving to the church, I had a flat tire. I had to get out and fix it. And by the time I got to the church, that's right, my brother had married my sweetheart. She didn't know the difference. But I got even with my brother, I sure did. You see, I died, but they buried him.